Welcome to A Friend of Mine, a series of conversations with some incredible and inspiring women in business from regional and rural Australia. I'm Kimberly Finesse, your host and the founder and editor of Oak Magazine, and I cannot wait to introduce you to some amazing female entrepreneurs who will share with you their experience and knowledge of what it takes to start, grow and scale a successful business. So let me introduce you to a friend of mine. When you arrive at Kestrel Nest Eco Hut, an off-grid, offline and eco-luxury farm stay, perched above a rocky mountain stream and surrounded by 360 degree views of rolling farmland, you can feel yourself exhale. Louise Freckleton, along with her husband David, are custodians of 840 acres of unceded Wiradjuri land, where they conduct small-scale ethical farming with the conservation of one of Australia's critically endangered forest types. The property also holds great cultural significance, and a cultural assessment was conducted to honour the land's original owners and their knowledge. On this stunning parcel of land near Adelong in the Riverina Highlands of New South Wales is the award-winning Kestrel Nest Eco Hut. Kestrel Nest was built after a long and meticulous design process. Louise wanted a simple open plan design that made one feel connected to the outdoors. The building was initially half built when the January 2020 black summer fires swept through the area, burning two thirds of the property. Despite the challenges, the strategic location of Kestrel Nest allowed for extensive firefighting efforts and the building was ultimately saved. The hut is named after the magnificent Kestrel the only bird seen near the eco hut for two weeks following the fires. In this episode, Louise discusses the inspiration behind Kestrel Nest, including the challenges and process of building the eco hut using recycled and local materials. She speaks about the significance of acknowledging and preserving the cultural heritage of the land. Louise also reflects on her transferable skills, such as her love for nature and her background in marketing and communications. Meet my friend Louise from Kestrel Nest Eco Hut. Hello, Louise, and welcome to the podcast. It's very exciting to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you for the opportunity to come and experience this beautiful parcel of land. I turned off uh, to your gate and it's, what, 5.5 sort of kilometre driveway to Kestrel Nest. And look, I mean, that probably would take someone, what, you know, five minutes, ten minutes. I think it took me half an hour because I just... I don't know, I took my time and, and you're sort of coming into the ranges a little bit more and you feel like you can breathe a bit and there's so much to see. So thank you for that experience. Oh, yeah. oh, that's, that's wonderful. But that's exactly what we aim for is for people to come here and turn off and have a different experience um, and to just focus on themselves and on nature and on each other when they come here with a partner or something instead of being on the screens all the time. And talking about on the screens, uh, there's no service up here. So no, <laughs> it's, um, it's a wonderful thing actually, isn't it, to disconnect. We sometimes see people very early on in their stay and they're a bit twitchy and they're kind of walking <laughs> around with the phone elevated trying to – and we do tell people where they can get reception. Of course, we need that for security and safety and so on. But uh, it doesn't actually take people that long to just go, 
(sighs) (laughs) There's no screens. No one can ping me. No, and it just builds. It's just another layer of the experience of staying here. And um, we've set up the podcast on the veranda here and, you know, just looking out the beautiful stream, you can see, I mean, I can't see a house anywhere. Nothing. No, there's nothing. Nothing. It's um. It's just hills and trees and a beautiful stream and wildlife and I can't believe I get to call this work. This feels like <laughs> a holiday. <laughs> yeah. Well, it is. You can come and stay. <laughs> Thank you. Well, let's get into it. Yeah. How, how did you come to this parcel of land? Yeah. How has that come about? We'd lived in cities all our life, most recently in Sydney, but we used to go bushwalking up here a lot. So. We would drive up here to go bushwalking in Kosciuszko and it was a very, very favourite place and we always thought around Adelong and Tume, it was just so beautiful. We'd kind of, ah, it's just so weird how it happened. I was actually in China on a work placement for six weeks and I think my husband was just really bored and he was looking through the rural for sale pages and found a number of properties that were uh, for sale by the Nature Conservation Trust of New South Wales. He Skyped me back in the Skype days. He Skyped me, you know, in my little tiny room in Shanghai and said, oh, I found these properties. They look really interesting. Uh, they've got conservation quality, you know, um, vegetation on them. How about snow view, he said. And I looked at it and I said, oh, it doesn't have a house and it doesn't have a creek. And then he said, well, what about Highfield? I said, oh, yeah, but I was in Shanghai, you know. I wasn't thinking about anything really except, you know, going to work the next day. The next Skype, he he announced that he was going to have a look at Highfield. Uh, And so um, he fell in love immediately. I can understand why. Mm. Yeah. You've obviously gone down the road of, you know, having something that's in conservation. Has that been part of your life for as long as you can remember? And and how did that come about? Is that a, a parent influence or? For as long as I can remember. Yeah. Not particularly a parental influence other than I grew up on the far-flung southern suburbs of Sydney and my first family house, well, uh, the first family house I grew up in, was the last house in the last street in the last suburb and it didn't have, it didn't even have a back fence. So there was no demarcation between my family backyard and the backyard of southern Sydney. So I distinctly remember, but it's not a false memory because my parents would verify this, that I would just run off into the bush with no shoes on and pick arms full of wildflowers and play with blue tongue lizards and what a childhood yeah, yeah. well it got worse I mean it was Sydney yeah but uh, and then you got but built. there's that little escapism that yeah. you know little place where you probably were able just to to forget that you are in a big city and yeah magic happens when you're magic happens you know, when you get to explore like that and when you're allowed to explore you yeah. know when you're allowed to get dirty and mm. pick up sticks and yeah you know yeah. it wasn't a precious girl childhood at all but I think also and then I I don't know for what reason I love walking walking is just a soothing beautiful it's a physical meditation 
And, you know, I would I walked a long way to school, you know, so I was very much in my head a lot. But that turned into an incredible love of going bushwalking. And that's, again, why we came to this area, I guess. I'd imagine there'd be so many tracks. Um, I've only just recently discovered hiking uh, through a girlfriend uh, mm. earlier this year. So yeah. uh, we did one down on the Mornington Peninsula. And it was really amazing like I it was a I think a 30k or 40k yeah great um, but I really enjoyed it like I, I think I felt like I was dying there a couple of days like a couple <laughs> of um the kilometers but um oh I don't know there was again just something about it and when you're doing it with a group of other uh, yeah. friends and women there's yeah some camaraderie there and you're talking through things it's like therapy as well and even if you're not talking through things I find that that kind of physical meditation of walking actually helps you work out a bunch of things. So you might have had an important decision to make or even a minor decision or something to contemplate and you weren't you're not even actively contemplating it but by the time you finish the walk you go what was I worried about that for or I know what I'm going to do about that now or just need space yeah no distractions yeah and the answers will come so you've come to purchase. Hmm. How, what are we sitting on? How many hectares? Uh, or? So 333 hectares or yeah. about 830 acres. But two-thirds of that is under a conservation covenant. Yeah. So that conservation covenant protects critically endangered habitat called boxgum grassy woodland. And it's critically endangered because really it, it was the wheat and sheep belt of, of Australia. So... Back of the divide, right from Queensland, right through New South Wales and into Victoria, that was all boxgum grassy woodland. And because it was um, turned into, you know, prime grazing and um, and cropping land, it only now exists in five percent of its former range. Wow! And you protect. What we protect this tiny. Oh, I don't know, <laughs> tiny <laughs> fragment, but. Um, a tiny fragment, but we're also um, contiguous with Ellerslie Nature Reserve, which is like a, a national park. And um, so, you know, together our conservation area and Ellerslie is protecting quite an amount of this boxgum grassy woodland. And, of course, habitat means that you're protecting wildlife as well. So there's about 12 threatened bird species as well rely entirely on boxgum grassy woodland. What is your job? What is your day no. job, Louise? Like this seems like a, a job in itself to yeah. you know to um, educate yourself about that and be on top of all that background and, yeah. and knowledge. Like, I don't know what my day job is. <laughs> to be really basic about it, we are custodians for that boxgum grassy woodland. But bizarrely, even more endangered is temperate native grasslands. And so two-thirds of our property is boxgum grassy woodland, but most of our grassland here in our grazing part or the part that we do graze is temperate native grasslands. And they are only extant in 1% of their former range. Because even in grazing, even if it hasn't been cropped, even in grazing country, um, a lot of native grasses have been destroyed to grow improved, and I'm doing air quotes, pasture. It's more threatened than boxgum grassy woodland. So when we realised that, we had this whole stressful moment that we couldn't just 
protect the box gum grassy woodland. We had to ensure that the way we grazed, the way that we lived on the non-conservation part, we had to go about enhancing and protecting native grasslands as well. Where does the business side of it come in? Yeah, that's a very good question. So we are very small-scale sheep farmers. We have some cattle as well, but we're mostly, we mostly raise dorper sheep. And because we're so small, we have to go direct to customer. So we have to set the price. That's what we do. We used to do farmer's markets, uh, but now we only sell direct delivery and we only service a small area. So all our lamb, all our beef, all our eggs, we sell um, between oh, Wagga and Tumbarumba. Yep. And we also um, sell through a fantastic cooperative in Tumut called Local at Limonts. Because we set the price, because we keep our footprint really small, and that's an ecological thing as well, we make the most we can from from our lamb business and beef and, and eggs. Yeah. yeah. What's it like at the moment with what's happening? Yeah, well, I think what happens is the news distresses me mm. because I can't imagine that people can't sell their sheep and are yeah, either, um, well putting them down on the farm and or finding that they, they're not even worthwhile to take to the sale yards. So that's yeah. extraordinarily depressing and um, I can't imagine the stress involved in that. So that's from an industry perspective, but personally we're not affected other than emotionally because we still have our market. We can still take our sheep to the very local abattoir in Gundagai and we've still got customers who want to buy our lamb. And because we're not a huge producer, we're not, we don't feel like we're stuck with thousands of sheep. Mm. So there's a real advantage in that keeping your production as close to you as you can and keeping your customers as close to you as you can. And we don't have the problem of sheep being only worth $2 a head. But also, I mean, just looking around, you'll see how green we are still. Yes. And even though we have been a little bit low on rain probably for um, September, there's so much soil moisture. We've still got dams running out. We're in a really good uh, spot at the moment and no doubt it will dry out further. But we've been here for ten and a half years now and we've spent a lot of time dividing paddocks up so when we came here there were only four paddocks we've divided them to 14 and we've probably got two more paddocks we really want to put in but that means we can control the grazing it means we can you know maintain full ground cover it also means that from a grass native grassland point of view that we can graze to enhance that native grassland rather than push anything too hard so let's talk about Kestrel Nest because that's where we are. This is the beautiful space that um, you. you've created here. How did that come about? Like, yeah. is this your baby? Have you yeah. built this? Yeah. Just behind us, uh, near where the old Dunny is, yeah, there was an existing um, hut ruin there. But it was, a, it was a complete ruin. There was really very little that we could salvage from that. But... 
coming out here and seeing where that hut ruin was just made us understand what a gorgeous setting this is. So we've got hills to the back and we've got uh, the Yavin Creek in front of us and beautiful rolling hills and grass and trees. As soon as we got here and saw that the hut ruin, we really wanted to build something here, very simple and in sympathy with the former building that guests could stay in. We're sort of really reusing an existing site. We've It's like a brownfield site. We haven't broken new ground really here. So that was intentional as well. Plus, a lot of the timber that's used inside the hut, the floorboards, the timber for the kitchen, the huge rafters, the bunks, they're all made out of timber grown and milled on the property. So mostly stringy bark, but red box and red gum. The kitchen also features beautiful mini orb and pressed metal that was in the old hut. So that was really all that was savable. We've sort of echoed the colours, you know, so we've kept it tin and timber and grey and red for the rust that was on the roof. And it's incredibly well insulated. And also you can feel the breeze. This spot collects a breeze no matter kind of how hot it is. You just get this little cool breeze. It's beautiful. Uh, how long did it take you to build this from yeah. sort of concept to, yeah. to being able to stay the night? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, we, it took a long time to design. I was For a long time I was looking for a design that was already there and I couldn't find it. So I designed it. Wow. Did you know you had this in you? No, no, but I knew, no, but I knew what I wanted. I wanted simple, open plan, feeling like you were outside the whole time. So it's got huge windows, double glazed and so on. So I just drew it. And then, of course, I'm not a drafts person or an architect. So we had to get a drafts person to draft it up properly. Uh, but it was a very simple conversion. And then we didn't build it because... We wanted a really good job and we'd already had an experience with a really fantastic builder in Wagga, Gumley Gumley. We knew he would really like this project, so um, we got him on board. Um, we started building in 2019, so right at the end of the drought. Uh, the building was half built when Black Summer came through and burnt two-thirds of our property. Oh, wow. I feel like, is that at the back there? Pretty much. Yeah, you sort of can still, you know, still see, I suppose, those Everything you can see here from like 360 degrees Mm. around the heart actually burnt. But where it burnt most severely is on that ridge at the back where you can see, um, you can see the the dead trees. Trees. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. How, what were the emotions during that time you must have, were you here on the property at all or? Um, I, uh, I was here most of the time. I was having a lot of trouble breathing. Oh, yeah. The, um, if you think eucalypt forests burn very difficult smoke to breathe, try breathing pine forest mm. smoke. It's acrid. It yeah. really stings your lungs. And I was having 
um, real trouble breathing. So uh, while the pine forests were the main thing that were burning, I, I just couldn't be here. I couldn't breathe. So, um, uh, but I would try to come back as much as I could. David was here the whole time. What were the emotions? Oh, I, I don't know and I'm not sure I really want to recall them. But there's so much adrenaline going on that you don't, well, it just feels like a rush the whole time. Yeah. So, and it's only later that it really whacks you. Yeah. But um, it was, it was, you just had to keep going. You just had to keep going. Was so, there any moment you thought that this might go or this might never get built again? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I'm actually not sure that I thought we were going to lose this half-built building. I think, um, bizarrely, we're in an incredibly strategic position here. So, um, basically, if the fire went through us, it was likely to cut off both the Hume and the Snowy Mountains Highway. So, so wow. I think there was a fair bit of, um, I don't know, I don't know what the strategy was behind it, but it seemed to me that there was, there was a lot of firefighting going on here, um, a lot. Um, there were times when there were like 10 trucks, helicopters, mm. water bombers and so on. I mean, it, the fire started near us, but it actually worked its way away from us for two and a half weeks such a long time isn't it it's a lot a long time yeah like you almost on. and i yeah. just keep thinking it's, it wasn't actually that long ago but it does feel that long ago yeah like you just think wow that actually still did happen because you do see it, i mean i can see it at the back ridge that you know obviously something's gone through but you know to sit at the front here you would you would never know yeah i can tell because yeah. i can tell well you're you know, yeah but but um you're right uh, i think because the view in front actually burnt really quite coolly yeah um it burnt seriously hot up the back yeah yeah but yeah so it started near us worked its way away from us from, for two and a half weeks and then it came back on the 10th of january I think because of the lead up, you know, because there was a lot of firefighting activity going on in Ellerslie from here, I had the feeling that people knew knew we were here. Also, we not only had support from rural fire service brigades from everywhere, but um, because we're right on the border of Ellerslie Nature Reserve, we also had national parks crews. And so there was a lot of attention here and we're just supremely grateful for it. Yeah. Buildings, places, they have stories, you know, and obviously that's part of Kestrel Nest's yeah. story. It's yeah. a part. But also the country that we're on. And yeah. I had heard in a podcast you talking about how important it was for you to look back at the original owners of, of land and yeah. and how that's a really important part of what you've done here. Yeah, I think if we're to summarise what our aims for this place are, they sound like very grandiose aims, but we are so conscious that we're living in climate change, that we're experiencing an extinction crisis. And we're really aware that we have big unresolved business in that, this country and that's acknowledging First Nations people in this country and their understanding of the land. So they sound like ridiculously big aims, but I think you've got to have a big philosophy and then pin your actions back to that. So we were really excited to have a cultural assessment done of the property by Uncle James Ingram initially and then Pete Ingram, his uh, nephew, came out and did a 
a whole day with us looking right through the property and identifying culture and um, modified trees, modified rocks. Peter documented an incredible range of extant culture um, here. So two canoe trees, a ring tree, loads of modified trees and probably evidence at that time, the last firing of the main valley the last traditional burning of the main valley. So subsequent to that, though, David did a, a course about cultural burning. And so we've started to implement um, some cool burns on the farm as well when when we can. Yeah. Wow. There is just so much thought that goes behind Kestrel Nest. It also is Kestrel Nest Eco Hut. Why eco? What mm. role does that word play? Yeah, I guess it comes back to some of those three aims for the property. We understand that we're in climate change and we understand that um, we're experiencing an extinction crisis and we've got land. We have the ability, even on this tiny, small scale, to act on those things. So part of the eco is the land we're on, two-thirds of it protecting critically endangered boxgum grassy woodland, and the efforts we're going into looking after temperate native grasslands. It starts with the land. And the hut, again, hasn't broken new ground. It's on a brownfield site. We've used timber from the property where we can. We've used recycled building materials. It's supremely insulated. It's also orientated the right way so that you get those breezes, that you get the maximum benefit of the solar panels on the roof. So it's totally off-grid. It's supported by battery storage. We've also tried to minimise new purchases because every new consumption is new in new energy being used. So the furniture is all antiques that I've collected over years and years. Only new furniture is bedding. That's got to be new. It's got to be new. <laughs> and, um, and the lounge... Mm, it that probably didn't need to be new, but it is. That's the only new furniture. The electrical goods, you want them new as well. Yeah, you don't want yeah. to start a fire out here with dodgy, <laughs> you know, old kettles and things. And where we have um, made new purchases, we've tried to keep them as local as possible so that we're supporting other local businesses. So we've tried and we continue to try to examine what goes in here, you know, and minimise the footprint of that. How have you marketed the place? How has that business brain, that marketing brain, come in and applied itself to Kestrel Nest? That's an interesting question. At first, we were quite coy about the eco-credentials here of both the hut and the land because I think we thought we might put people off. But after having gone through Black Summer and Lismore floods and observing disasters elsewhere, we've decided to be much more upfront with talking about the eco-credentials of here, also talking about the environmental projects that we undertake on the farm. We've also decided to be really serious about seeking certification. So in January, we got Ecotourism Australia certification and then at one level and then we, in June, we upgraded that to another level. There are so many farm stays that call themselves eco, 
but have nothing to back it. We're really quite concerned that if guests think they're buying eco or sustainable, that they are, that we're giving them what they think they're buying. That verification through certification and that communication about our credentials we think is really important. Yeah. Uh, what are your bookings like? I know yeah. that. So I don't know if that's a really <laughs> like, rude question. No, Sorry, Louise. So could have asked that um, in such a, a nicer way. But uh, and, and I'm only asking that yeah. probably from what I'm reading in the news maybe and talking to other like Airbnb people or short stay accommodation. Yeah. yeah. Like what's it like at the moment? Okay. It is a little bit tougher at the moment. We opened after the first COVID shutdown, you know, the nationwide one that went from yeah. like March yeah. to June or See, something? I'm from Vic. We had so many. It just felt like <laughs> I was in like, lockdown yeah, the whole time. Exactly. So I just, yeah. Well, there was that, there was a one big window where we got to get out again. It was March and June. <laughs> and we opened in June. And, and, and I think, you know, despite the, the fact that at different times, well, Victoria was completely closed, but despite the fact that Canberra and Sydney had times when no one could travel, rural New South Wales was, was kind of okay and I yeah. think we were in a great place really <laughs> and also no one could travel overseas so our occupancy in those first two years was phenomenal and also people didn't want to go to places where there were other people so the isolation of this place was just perfect. We've gone from having something like 90% occupancy and we can't be 100% because we have a two-night minimum. Yes. So really through COVID we had about 90% occupancy and now it's dropped. I haven't done the stats recently but now people have so many more options. Um, Going overseas, lots of people are catching up with family and friends rather than staying... Um, you know, at accommodation. But that's okay. We're still doing better than our business forecasts, you know, than our business plan. So we're, we're fine. We're happy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I feel like I've been uh, spoiled the last uh, week. Obviously, I've stayed somewhere else for a couple of nights and then I'm here. And it's just, um, for me, it's that off-grid, I think. Yeah. Like I... Again, I've, it's, there's lots of deadlines at the moment coming to the end of the year, which is the busiest time. Um, lots of decisions to make about your business as well sometimes. And I don't know, I've just found these last few days uh, out amongst no one, the isolation, the rural roads, myself, I, my head is so clear. Mm. My, like I'm just, I don't know, I don't even have anxiety or that pressure on my chest at the moment. Like I, you know, I'd love to go overseas. I'd love to experience, you know, something and have those lived experiences. But I think there's also a really big need for us to step away from a business and recollect ourselves because mm. it feels really stressful at the moment. Mm. But I haven't thought about the economy or anything like that for the last few days. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah, thank goodness. Yeah. Well, people come here and tell us that they – have had the space to make big decisions or, you know, resolve something that they'd been thinking about for a while or think about nothing. And I think it is a gift to be away from the technology and, you know, not seeing another house or shed or car or... Yeah, person. Anything, person. <laughs> Not even hearing the highway. You can't hear the no, highway. No, that, it's that – yeah. Uh, as I said, I'd, I'd arrived a little earlier than you and um, 
I actually lost time. I just stood there. <laughs> I was just listening to the creak and I think it brings for me back childhood memories of being on my grandparents' farm. Mm. You know, the opening of the gates and, and that sort of thing as well. So, um, yeah, again, just the word restorative at the moment. Just, yeah. You know, and I, that's just not me, Louise. I don't sit in that space a lot. So yeah. uh, I say it from such an honest place of oh. far out. This feels really good this week oh. <laughs> of what was probably a really stressful try and find my way to A to B and Z and um it's amazing. Uh, in terms of your career, what transferable skills have you had to help you build and run Kestrel Nest? Boy, you know, I don't think I've ever really thought about that. So let's do it now on a podcast. <laughs> First up, that love of being in nature, that comfort with being by yourself or surrounded by the bush that has come right from my childhood and been enjoyed by bushwalking, that comfort is really important. When I did work, I I still work. I work really hard. I did do quite a lot of marketing and communications work. I was never qualified in marketing and communications work, but that was the basis of a lot of the work that I did. I think... I had no transferable skills around agriculture and sheep husbandry, none. But I love the responsibility of looking after other creatures and they've taught me a lot. I've got one more question. It's always my favourite. Can you tell me about a friend of yours that we need to know about? Jen Clark, uh, who lives at Woodend in Victoria. My gosh, I had another podcast who someone mentioned would end as well, ah. like around this region. Yeah, right. How, wow, how yeah. interesting. And Jen is going to shake the short stay industry. Jen is building a community called Hosting with Heart and a booking platform called Heartful. Her focus is on putting some quants behind sustainability and accessibility in short-stay accommodation. So you have to speak to her or people need to be aware of her. The other um, person I would love to acknowledge is Auntie Cheryl Penrith, who's a local Wiradjuri elder. She is just... The quietest diplomat I think I've ever met. She knows everyone. Everyone knows her. And yet it's a quiet thing. I love those two people. They're great shout outs. I had spotted Kestrel Nest Eco Hut on Instagram a couple of years ago, actually. And I've always thought, what an incredible place to stay. Mm-hmm. I think meeting you and, and getting that story behind the country that we're on, what you've done to uh, to hold on to that and respect it, as a as you said, as a custodian of this little parcel here, uh, just makes it even more special. Do you think you're a better person because of Kestrel Nest? Um, I guess so. <laughs> I think so. But that might be for others to judge. I think what it's given me is purpose. I think when you live and work in a city and, you know, you're busy doing an air quotes important job, 
it's hard to focus on some of the really big issues and again we come down to those three principles about you know acknowledging climate change acknowledging the extinction crisis and acknowledging the great unsolved problem of Australia and that's reconciliation with First Nations people and this land has given us the opportunity to address those three very important big picture things that we need to focus on and that you can do that big picture thinking you can do that actions towards those big things and still run a business yes I love that how it it does you can still run a business yeah. Yes. In fact, they're not mutually exclusive. In fact, having those big visions really helps keep you on track. It really gives you a framework to work with. Oaks made me a better person just in the last six years and it's through the people that I meet. It's through people like yourself uh, who talk about, you know, why you've done something, why it's important. It gives you food for thought that reflection time to think about, okay, where do my values sit? Yeah. You know, and it just opens up your mind, you know, and I'm, I'm so grateful for that. Yeah, I just... There's so uh, many cool people. There are, there, there really is. And just thank you for this beautiful space that you've built here. And I hope people just take some time out to, to book a stay, you know, bring a book, sit here. Bring and, a book. You know, this breeze is just delightful. Yeah. I mean, the morning it has um, the promise of a warm day, but the cool breeze that, that mm. comes through that you could probably hear in the microphones and, you know, that's so that you feel like you're sitting here with us um, and having a good chat and just looking at rolling hills, listening to a stream. It's beautiful. Thank you, Louise. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, you're going to have to come and stay. I am. <laughs> I, I think I'm coming back. I need to bring that other half with me. Yeah. I, I dropped him off um, after last week. <laughs> Can only do a week. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I need to bring him back. I feel like I've, I've just lived my best life this week and probably needed to share that with someone. <laughs> so thank you. Oh, thank you so much. Now, before you take off with all that inspiration and knowledge, we'd love for you to leave a review on our podcast so that we can continue to amplify women's voices in the media. And if you have any questions, we'd like to celebrate a win. You can always connect with us on Facebook and Instagram at Oak Magazine AU. I'm so glad we've met and that now you know a friend of mine.